morning. We are glad you're with us today, and I hope that you've had an opportunity just to uh, worship and celebrate, to think about your week, how things have gone, to consider where God fits in all of this. And as we are reimagining the world and reimagining what it looks like to live life right now, I hope that this is a time where you can just stop and consider things other than what you see in the news, consider other things than uh, what worries you or what distracts you, but instead can be intentional and be thinking about where we go from here. Uh, I am excited about these next couple of weeks. Uh, I've got a few things I want to do with you before we wrap up this series on emotions. And so I hope that you'll stick with us. Uh, today is really the last emotion that we're going to talk about, although next week we're going to start talking about uh, where is God when I hurt? So we're, we're not talking about hurt in the sense of the emotion itself. It's a universally shared thing that we all feel, but where is God when we hurt? And one of the big questions that, that people who don't know Christ ask is where is God when bad things happen? So we're going to talk about where is God when I hurt, um, and then we're going to kind of wrap up the series looking at all of the emotions and ask the basic question, so what do we do with all of this information? How do we live our lives intentionally in a way that acknowledges those emotions but are not um, simply driven by those emotions? So I hope that you will stay with us. If you're new joining us online, we are really happy that you've chosen to do that, and we're hoping to be in person very soon. Uh, we're still watching everything. We say this every week, uh, but really do hope and believe that in in. A uh, short period of time, we'll not only will we be able to be back in person, but we'll be able to be back and be doing lots of lots of things that we normally would be doing. I've shared over the last couple of weeks ways you can still get involved, um, and if you would like to get involved, uh, as Scott mentioned, we have room in the inn. Um, we also have an opportunity to help some families uh, that are in need to do some yard work and some things uh, just around their houses. They're not able to get out and do that for themselves. We're kind of waiting for a break in the weather, but it feels like maybe that's coming. Um, if you are open to getting out, doing some work outside with a few other people, I would love to hear from you, and we would like to set up some of those opportunities just to serve our community. It's one of the things I love about our church. It's one of the things I've missed uh, during this time as people have been social distancing, and there are many needs out there of people that just need some help and aren't able to do it themselves. So those are ways you can get involved as well as here. Uh, there are some new realities that we're going to be dealing with in the coming weeks. We're already here. And one of the changes that we're going to have moving forward and that we're developing right now is an increased ministry online to people that are connected to us either in our city or outside of our city. Um, right now, we have two incredible tech guys that pretty much make all of this happen every single week. Jeremy and Wayne work tirelessly making sure that there's a pod, or not a podcast, but a, a live service that you can hear, that you can see, uh, and everything looks good. So uh, we are needing to grow our tech team. And so if you have experience and if you don't have experience, uh, we could use your help. It is inside, so you need to be healthy and you need to feel confident doing that. If you've been vaccinated, if you've already had COVID, um, or if you're willing to come and mask up or, or whatever for the short term, in the long term, we really need some more tech help to do some of the things we're going to do in the future, and we would love for you to be a part of that. All right? So uh, if you are new, I just want to tell you that Journey is a uh, place for you, and I know some have been watching online or thinking about joining us in person. Uh, we started our church 12 years ago with the hope, I'm 13 now, with the hope that we would reach people that either felt disenfranchised from the church or were asking questions about God. But it's also a place for those who are strong in their faith, who want to live that out with like-minded people and want to invest in the community um, around them. It's a place where you can come if you have doubts. It's a place you can come if you have questions. It's a place that you can come if you don't feel like you look the part, talk the part, uh, it is a place where you can be loved no matter where you're coming from. So we would love to connect with you and hear from you. Uh, we're not ourselves trying to be a different church in the sense of what the church has been through the last 2,000 years, but we are trying to fully experience it and, and, and communicate what it is uh, in ways that remember what God intended for it to be. Sometimes those get lost, and so we're trying to, as authentically as we can to demonstrate what that is. All right? 
So let me tell you where we're going today, uh, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, we, the last week, last week we talked about faith and some of you checked on me. I got a little worked up. Um, I felt like it was justifiably worked up and, uh, and so I don't plan to get worked up quite the same way today, but faith is important. And for us as Christians in a doubting society and culture, it's important for us to recognize faith scripturally was never meant to be the thing that we just, we opt for a different reality. (laughs) Instead, it is evidence uh, or it is based on evidence that there is a deeper reality that goes behind everything. So we've talked about faith. We did that last week. If you didn't see that, it's crucially important for you to go back and watch that because our faith is not just something that we make up. And it's something that is supposed to be based in some level of reality. We talked about um, hope before that. We talked about our short and long game where there are hopes that we have for ourselves, but really when God talks about hope, our hope is for others and for all of humanity, for all the, all the world. So uh, we've talked about that. We've talked about some negative emotions like anxiety, anger. Uh, we've talked about some really positive things uh, like hope and faith. And today we're going to be talking about love. Interestingly, by the end of this sermon, you may think that this sermon, this topic doesn't even fit in a series on emotions, and I'm already going to tip my hat to what we're doing. So where are we going today? We're going to be talking about what is love. I'm going to be getting some help like I have for the last few weeks for some other teachers, including some elephants, some birds, and Russell Brand. And you may be wondering, how in the world am I going to bring Russell Brand into all of this? But he has a lot to share with us on our topic um, for today. I mean, talking about what I believe the point of life is, why I follow Jesus, um, and why my faith is based on evidence of reality that stems from this true understanding of what love um, is. Whenever we look through the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus says over and over again, love is the point of life. It is the point of the church. It is the point of faith. It is the point of everything. Even the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, the point was about Love. So when Jesus started talking about the kingdom and saying, the kingdom's here, like you can experience the kingdom right now. My kingdom's not of this world. And when he talks about that kingdom, he says, the way that people are going to know you're a part of this kingdom is that you're going to have love for one another. <laughs> Whenever he says, he, you know, if you want to wrap up every teaching of the Bible into one thing, you can wrap every single thing up in the Bible into the topic of Love, because he says, if you were to summarize the entire law, it would be to love God and it would be to love people. So love is a crucial, crucial element for us to understand uh, what it means to be a Christian. In fact, uh, scripture goes so far as to say God himself is the embodiment of love. In 1 John 4, 16, it says we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is Love and whatever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. In Romans 5 7 and 8, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So even the, the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection was wrapped up in love. This is an act of love. So with all of that, let's jump in. And I also want to do what we've done for each of these emotions and understand the language behind what is being said. And what's important to understand again is that the English language disappoints so many times when we go back and we read scripture, because in the English language, we use a very few number of words to express a very large number of ideas. So the same word means something completely different to two different people. When we look at the idea of these emotions, we understand that sometimes the words that we use to describe the emotion is not at all what the original authors intended for us to understand it to be. It, It means something completely different. So Let's start as we have with the other emotions in English, and what does it mean? What is the definition of love in the English dictionary? You will find that it says that love is an intense feeling of deep affection, a great interest and pleasure in something, or in the verb form that love is to feel deep affection for someone, to like or enjoy 
very much. Now, with the English definition of love, that makes a whole lot of sense that we would do a, a week on love in a series called Emotions. Because our English definition of love is wrapped up completely and wholly in feelings. Not only is it a feeling in the way we understand love, it is like, it is the feeling. If you can have one feeling in life, even above happiness, it is likely love. The way we chase after love, we can look throughout the ways that we spend our time and our money. Usually we're chasing something Oftentimes, we're chasing love and our friendships and our relationships with our spouses, with our kids. Uh, love is, is like the ultimate of all of the emotions. However, is that the way that the Bible talks about love? Because if we're going to understand that God is love, is, does that mean God is a, a feeling? Let's just, let's just put that definition into 1 John 4, 16, where it says God is love. God is an intense feeling of deep affection. Well, I don't know. What does that mean? God is a great uh, has is a great interest and pleasure in something. God is feeling deep affection for someone. God is to like or enjoy very much. It, the English way we understand love is incredibly disappointing, and it doesn't make any sense for the rest of the gospel if we don't understand love in the way that God intends to do that. So. Let's look at some of the Greek definitions of love, and then we're going to jump into where the Bible speaks specifically and most fully about what love is, but also what love is not. So when we look through the Greek, we find, and some of you who are, are students of the Greek language or students of uh, love in general through the church, what you'll find is you have heard of at least three, but there are, eight, are at least four major categories of love that we find in the New Testament and throughout the Bible. The first one that we're probably most familiar with is philia. Philia is that that love between friends, a type of an intimate love that the Bible talks about between Christians. So when Jesus says, "You will know," they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. He's talking about uh, philia love, and it's a brotherly love. Philadelphia uses this same word to say this is the city of brotherly. Love. It is an intimate love and a practice towards each other in which there is an emotional bond, but it's like really strong friendships. Like we are really good friends. We enjoy being with each other. We help each other. We look forward to seeing each other. We want to talk to each other. Uh, we share what's really going on in our lives with each other rather than just pretending that we're all fine. We let those deeper friendships know what's really going on with us. They are one of the most wonderful and most bountiful relationships that we have with people, or at least we can have with people. In the church, this should be the way we engage each other. This is the kind of love that is when a guest walks in the door and they see us talking to each other. This is ideally, after some time together, the kind of love that they see when they walk in and then they want to be drawn into. They want to be drawn into this brotherly, sisterly love with other believers. So that's one of the types of love that we see. Then there's storge. Storge is familial love. And this is the kind of love that you just instinctually have for your family. For example, before Jake was born, whenever our friends would have a baby, you know, depending on their comfort level, they would say, well, do you want to hold the baby? I would always be like, no, Deidre can hold the baby. I don't want to hold the baby. I have no interest in holding babies. I might drop the baby. I, I What am I going to do with this baby? I can't have a conversation. No interest whatsoever with babies. But yet, the day that Jake is born, it's like you cannot pry him from my cold, dead fingers. That first moment of realization of storge love in which I just love this child, which I've experienced with all of our children, just from the first day of holding them. It just happens. It's instinctual. They've not done anything to deserve it. They've not done anything to earn it. They've not done anything to meet my needs. They simply exist. And some, uh, some child development experts will even tell us those cute faces that they make. You know, when they just kind of look at you with those big googly eyes, some of that all facilitates some of this storge love. They look cute. Like if they look cute, they look like an ugly little gremlin, you might not want to hold them and feel good about them. And some of our kids, let's be honest, they did look like ugly little gremlins, but we still love them dearly. 
But this is storge love. It's a type of love. It goes far beyond a feeling, right? But a feeling is involved. Our culture drive, which is a third type of love that we read about in the Bible, is called eros love. It is what our culture loves. It is what entertainment industries love. It's what people who want to get ratings in their shows love. This is um, the kind that seeks its own interest, its own satisfaction. It's that sexual, obsessive, lustful love. It's that love that says, I have a need and I need you to meet that need. We were talking earlier before we got started this morning in the fact that I'm, I'm a firm believer if you, I mean, if you are a subscriber on Netflix or, or Prime or Stars or HBO Max or any of them, whenever they develop shows, you can, get, you can pretty much bet they're going to be rated MA for Mature. And at least the shows that aren't sure they've got a strong enough story to stand on their own, they're going to put a lot of sex and nudity in there because they are going to try to appeal towards this it's kind of selfish need for this lustful desire, this eros love that is built within us, which is a gift from God. It also helps us accomplish the calling of God, which is go and multiply and fill the earth with kids. Interestingly enough, we live in a time where the birth rate has been dropping for a while and continues to drop as people aren't sure they want to have kids. But one of the purposes of Eros love is so that you would be attracted to someone that you would want to have kids. But yet when we understand it in our culture, it seems that Eros love is the primary way people are seeking to fill their lives. If you go through and you read different statisticians and those who are studying love and the way the culture understands love, even two years ago, NPR did an article uh, that said in, in one of the studies they were following of roughly 9,000 American adults, one in five were either open to or, or had at some point participated in a polyamorous relationship, which means they have sexual relationships with more than one person. Monogamy being where it's just between two people, polyamory, I have multiple relationships with other people. The other Day I was at the gym and they had they often at my gym they have a show called the doctors on and I don't know if they're real I think they're real doctors I don't know if they're real doctors I don't watch talk shows and they their study that they had been following said one in three adults today was not only in favor of or not only okay with but in favor of polyamorous relationships but the thing that's important for us to understand about eros love is it is incredibly selfish. It is not a giving love. It is a taking love. It is one where I say, these are my needs, and I want you to meet my needs. It's so important that we teach our children all of these different aspects of love because God has given all of them to us. But like anything, practicing them in a healthy way is what leads us to loving life. Practicing them in an unhealthy way leads to being self destructive. It's important for teenagers to recognize that this eros love is one of those drives that you have when you're going through, uh, you know, changes within you, emotional and hormonal changes within you. And yet I would say, especially to our young women in our church and for those who are listening, eros love makes no sense within your life unless you have the other types of love as well. If you don't at least have Phileo love, eros love just gets really confusing. It's one of those things in which even within the church, most people within the church would say it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. In fact, it's preferable to give it a shot, to give it a try, just to see what it's going to be like if you decide to commit to someone. But I would say, especially to our young girls, but also to our young men, I would say commit yourself to someone who is committing to more, for more to you than simply that you will meet their selfish eros needs. More of that in a minute. Fourth type of love that we find in the New Testament is called agape. Uh, this is kind of that love that we say, yeah, we know what that is, but we've given up on actually trying to live it out because it's what God is. When it says God is love, this is God is agape. I'm not God. I can't love the way God loves. 
Agape love is God's immeasurable, incomparable love for humankind. It's the divine love that comes from God. Agape love is perfect, unconditional, sacrificial, and pure. It is ideally the type of love that marks our relationships with other believers, though not often and not always, because this is a supernatural type of love. However, when the Bible talks specifically about what love is and what love isn't, it is talking about agape love, which means we can express this. And not only can we express this type of love, this is a calling for us. And what I will hopefully show you in these next few minutes is that not only is this a calling, this is the point of life. Like if you were to ask a person, what is the meaning of life? It is to love. Now, is the English definition where I feel something, maybe, sometimes, certainly feeling should be involved. But it's really so much more. The most central place we find teaching about this comes from Paul in his letter to his troubled house churches in Corinth, which is interesting because Corinth was a messed up place. When he's writing to Corinth, these are a number of churches that he has started, and they have gone kind of off the rails. They are in a lot of trouble, and they have abandoned most of his teaching. His teaching of love was not, you know what I want to tell my friends in Corinth? I just want to build on what we've already started, and I just want them to know how wonderful love is. But that is not why Paul was writing. Paul was writing because they couldn't get anything right, and he was trying to remind them of what the goal was. They're trying to remind them of what all of this faith in Christ is about. So he has to address a number of issues with them, issues like they would have disagreements and they would drag each other to court and they would make this big spectacle that the whole city, even people who weren't believers could see it. They would sue each other because they felt wronged and they went to the courts to try to fix it. And he would say, you know, you need to settle this among yourselves. How can we claim to love each other if we can't even settle our disagreements with each other? We have situation in, in one church, and in these house churches, if you've been a part of a small group, they are more reminiscent of sm home small groups than they are about worship experiences like we have today. You may have 10, 15, 20, maybe up to 50 people that would attend one of these house churches, and in one such house church, there was a mother and a, and a son who wanted to have sex with each other, and they wanted to have that eros relationship with each other. And Paul's like, are you crazy? Even people outside the faith don't even, they know that's not good, and yet this is something you're trying to justify within your faith? There's another place in which whenever they would come together, and you can imagine in a study of 10, 15, 20 people, they just keep talking over each other. Won't get, let anybody get, else get a word in. And Paul has to say, listen, you need to be quiet. You need to listen and be teachable. Because when someone comes in and they see this kind of behavior, they don't see anything that looks like what God wanted it to look like. What they see is just the same thing they see out in the world, competitiveness. One person trying to, to climb over another, trying to prove they know more. They're better than someone else. So Paul's writing this among a number of other problems that they're experiencing, how they pray, how they worship, things that have just gotten out of hand. But in this letter, he drops this beautiful language about what the kind of love is. Now, we're going to read it all together in just a minute. And before we do, I want you to recognize that this is not just interesting. If you're a follower of Jesus this is what you should be moving towards. So this, this idea of agape love, which is what Paul is describing, this is not just something that we go, oh, look how God loves me. <laughs> Instead, it's for us to stop and to say, oh, look how I should love others. This is the calling of believers. And even though we all struggle and none of us are going to live this out perfectly, we should be improving as we mature. So read this with expectation, and then let's understand what he's saying, because he may not exactly be saying what we sometimes think he's saying here when we read this, and we want to feel good about life and love, or we, someone's getting married, and we want to talk about, well, this is how your marriage is going to be, and then you get in your marriage, and you realize, my marriage isn't like this. 
not unless you're intentional about it. So what does that look like? Let's read it together. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. There's kind of an introduction, there's kind of a conclusion, and then there's a lot of meat right in the middle. But let's start with verse 1. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what is this, this greatest of the three greats? Faith, hope, and love are the three greats in the Christian faith. You cannot have Christian faith without the three, and yet of the three, two of them are only temporary. Only one of them is eternal. Love is eternal. Love never ends. Interestingly, what Paul does here is he introduces the topic to say, you can be the perfect Christian, but if you don't have this type of love that I'm about to talk about, it means nothing. You have nothing. This would possibly be the person who stands before Christ, and Christ says there are going to be those who come, and I'm going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You don't have love. It's possible that you can do great things for God. But if there's not an underlying movement of love within your life, then it it will literally mean nothing in the kingdom of God. Maybe in the kingdom of the earth, we celebrate you. And I talked about one such person who was celebrated as a great Christian, and yet their behavior was not loving. It was much worse. So without love, there is nothing, nothing else matters. Prophesying doesn't matter. Having all this mysterious knowledge about the supernatural doesn't matter. How good of a preacher you are doesn't matter. What church you go to doesn't matter. How much you give to the church doesn't matter. How much you give to other people doesn't matter if love's not involved. Without love, there is nothing. And then he ends this section, and I love the title of this that the English Standard Version puts in. This was not part of original scripture, but when they put their subtitles for different breaks in the content, the subtitle they put for this break in the content was called The Way of Love. I thought, oh, that's fitting, and that is true, and that is also where we're headed this morning. At the end, kind of the conclusion of this, he says all this other stuff is going to go away. Everything else is going to go away. As you mature, you're going to grow in this one thing, and it is love. So interestingly, the meat in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13, are really just four verses, but in those four verses, there are 16 descriptions of love. Now, the first eight, or eight, now they're not in order, but eight of the descriptions talk about what love is. So it says love is patient. And love is kind, and love rejoices with the truth, and love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things, and love will never end. It's that thing that you don't have to worry about losing, because when you have it, you have it forever. 
So those are the eight things in which Paul says this is what love is. But interestingly, he, he tells us what love is not. And so he gives us eight things that love is not that we then have to figure out from those things than what is love. Love is not envious, boastful, arrogant, rude. It's not insistent on getting their own way. It's not irritable, resentful, or rejoicing in wrongdoing. Now, the nice thing about those lists is it puts it down in a very succinct, clear way for us to see. The bad thing about the list is it makes us feel like utter failures in the emotion of love, doesn't it? At least it does for me. When I think back about my behaviors, there are times that I'm irritable, although I wouldn't admit to it. There are plenty of times that I want to get my own way instead of someone else getting theirs. There are times I'm boastful, times I'm resentful, times I'm jealous. There are times I really don't hope for what's best for others, and I don't really believe the best, hope for the best for others. So when we go through this list, it's important that we don't put the American Christian shine on it that says we will pretend to be these things because God says you can pretend all you want, either have it or you don't. Instead, we can look at this and decide, so what actually are these things? So let's go through these, and they are grouped together. So we're going to look at each grouping between verses 4 and verses 8 and try to understand exactly what they are. The first grouping we find in verse 4 is that love is patient and kind. Now, interestingly, the impatient people in the room know this, but they've never stopped to think about it because they are by nature impatient. (laughs) So we jump on to the next one, right? Oh, kind. I get that one, but impatient, whatever, whatever. Sometimes the way we read things, we read them through our own personalities, but we have to understand what does Paul really meant. When Paul says love is patient, this is the uh, Greek word makrothemai, macro meaning long, themai meaning heart or soul. So being patient literally would mean to be long-hearted or maybe long-suffering. There's an aspect here that is talking about the amount of time a person requires from you. So agape love says, love is long-suffering, long-hearted. I have time for you. I have time to wait for you. And, and in our world, we don't wait for anything, Right? We are an impatient culture. We are an impatient society. Agape love says, of all the things I could do right now, I have time for you. I have time. Which means this aspect of time has to hinge on the needs of another, not on the needs of the one being loving. So I'm going to love you even if I have to wait on you and I have no control over how long that is. That may mean that if I'm going to love you, I have something I need to say to you, but I'm going to wait for the right time to say it. See, in the church, we we like to say, well, I just need to share some truth with you, which usually means I'm not going to take the time to make sure I share this in the best possible way. I'm just going to get it off my chest and move on to my next thing. But love waits. Love says, it's okay that you've got other things going on. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to wait for you to grow. I'm going to wait for you to apologize. I'm going to wait for you to recognize the wrongness in something. I'm going to wait with you when you need somebody to be here with you. I'm going to listen to you when you're rambling on and I have no idea what cohesive thread of of, of logic is coming out of your mouth, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait for you because this is what you need from me. So when we read through stuff like this and we say, yeah, love is patient. All right, love is patient. But when we stop and we consider what does that really mean, it changes our understanding of how we're supposed to love each other. 
There's a component of time. So love is patient. It's long-hearted. It's long-suffering. We have time to give another person. But love is also kind. And the Greek word for kind is trastute, which means to furnish or provide what is needful. Think about this as your definition of kind because you have a definition of kind and it generally means something like being nice to people. But that's not enough. That's the English way we understand it. In the Greek, it is to furnish or provide what is needful. It can also mean full of service to others and some translate it simply by the word sweet. In other words, love has time for someone, and when we are together, that time is sweet in service to others, attending to the needs of others. Now, this is very different from the English definition we talked about where it's a feeling, I'm infatuated with something, or I like something, or something brings me pleasure, or I have pleasure in something or someone. Isn't that different? Because both of these have nothing to do with the one who is loving. It has everything to do with taking care of another. Now, this makes more sense when we understand God is love, right? This makes more sense that God makes time for us. God waits for us. God is long-suffering for us. God is in service to our needs. God looks after what we need. You could probably just remember some verses off the top of your head that say these very same things about God and how he feels for you. So when we understand love simply as an emotion or as a feeling, we miss what love really is because love is actually incredibly active and also focused on the recipient of love, not on, the, on ourselves who want to actually receive love. It's outward focused. It's on others. So love is patient and love is kind. Can we say, can people say about us that when they spend time with us, that time was sweet? That they look forward to seeing us when they leave, they leave better than when they came. They're encouraged. They're uplifted. They're empowered. They're received with loving arms. That's what kindness is. Are we a people that when others come around us, they leave saying, that was a sweet time? Maybe not in those words, but you get the, you get the feeling behind it. That was a sweet time. They were kind. So that's the first phrase that we find. The second one is this, love does not envy or boast. So they go together, but what do they mean? Some of your translations will say, jealousy instead of envy. The reality of envy, being envious or being jealous um, of someone else is that we aren't actually envious or jealous unless we're unhappy that someone else has done well. Think about that. You succeeded. I am not happy about that because I wanted to succeed. You got the promotion, but I wanted the promotion. You won the sweepstakes, but I wanted to win the sweepstakes. See, jealousy and envy is wishing they hadn't won. Jealousy and envy, the kind of love, what love is not, it is not the kind of thing that says, you know what, something good happened for you, I really wish it hadn't. I'm a little upset that that good thing happened to you. See, that is not love. This is one of those phrases in which Paul says, you can't fully understand what love is unless you understand what love isn't. So if we try to understand, well, then what's the opposite of, uh, of being envious or, or boasting, which also is very tied closely to the next phrase, that it is not arrogant or rude, means that love, if it's not jealous or envious, love actually celebrates when someone else wins and we don't. There are times we, when we go to Jonathan's basketball games or Jake's track meet or Emma's volleyball games and then Malia, whatever sport she plays, you know, the nature of 
athletics, especially childhood athletics, is not to be excited the other team won. In fact, they will question your sanity if you cheer for the opposite team. They may even ask you to leave. But there are times, especially now that Jonathan is playing basketball in high school and the the play is elevated from what it was when they were younger, that you just watch the opposing team just move the ball through the court and lay it in the basket, and you just can't help but stand and clap because that was a thing of beauty. It wasn't my team. It hurt my team. But I looked at it and thought that was an amazing thing they just did. See, whenever we love someone, it's not that we hate that they're winning. We love that they're winning, even if it means we're losing. Can you love someone... Can your spouse, your kids, where they get what they want, but you don't get what you want? But it's not the kind of thing that builds resentment. Instead, it builds within you this wonderful experience that this is what life is supposed to be about. We're supposed to celebrate for each other. I'm supposed to be excited you did well. I'm supposed to be excited that you won. You know, I didn't win, but that's okay, because you did. Do you have any friends like that? If you don't have any friends like that, you need some because they are some of the best friends you will ever have because they just add to your life. They are kind. Their time with them is sweet. You feel encouraged and empowered. You want to spend more time with them because they celebrate with you. Even if they're sitting on some bad news for themselves, they celebrate with you. This is what love is. This is the kind of love that Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at these men who have have nailed him to this cross and he says, God, they just don't even understand what they're doing. Don't, Don't hold this against them. Forgive them. They don't understand because he's giving something to us and it's costing him dearly. But because he loves us, he gives it anyways and he celebrates that we are winning even if in that moment he is losing. Now love makes more sense, doesn't it, for the rest of Scripture? When we begin to unpack what this really means and what this, how, how, how we're supposed to live. I, I've, told, I've told you now a couple of times that I believe this is the point of life. Like if you were to take all of Christianity, take everything out, take everything out and start from fresh and say, what is Christianity about? It would be this. Christianity is about true love. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Jesus said. He just used different words. He just said... The whole law can be summed up in this, that you will love the God, your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Everything, the gospel, is wrapped up in love. So, how are we doing sharing that gospel of love as Christians? See, a lot of times we get been out of shape because somebody does something wrong and maybe we're been out of shape because we've tried really not to do that wrong thing even though we ourselves want to do it and so we get mad that they got to do it so we tell them they were wrong i'm not saying that love ignores wrongs in fact paul is very clear that love does not avoid things that are wrong how are we doing How are our words to our unbelieving friends? How are our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat posts to our unbelieving friends? Would they say, you know what Mark's all about? Mark is all about love. Because that's what the gospel is all about. And that's what Jesus was all about. And literally, that's what God is, love. How are we doing on this? Are you depressed yet? (laughs) We could be easily level of love is not something that comes naturally. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we grow into, we mature into. See, love is not focused on ourselves. We're not envious. We're not boastful. We're not arrogant or rude because someone else is in our way and we need it all for ourselves. That's why I tell our, our students, teenagers, our single men and women, and our married men and women. Eros is the wrong love to wrap your world around. It's selfish. It sucks people dry. 
It takes whatever they have to offer and they take it for themselves. And whether they give something back or not, it doesn't really matter. Our culture tries to wrap our whole life around this idea of Eros love. And they say, you know what? This is freedom. This is you getting to do what you want. It feels good. Do it. What they don't say is how broken you'll feel when you go home the next day. They don't tell you how you feel like you've given a piece of yourself away that you can't get back or that when you find that person that actually you do express and receive these types of love from all these others that Paul's talking about and you say, oh, I wish I hadn't given that away to somebody else. This is why from the very beginning with Adam and Eve, God says you will be joined together. You'll be committed to each other. This is why he said divorce is not my ideal. It's not my goal for you because what, what comes together, you become one. It's ripped apart. But you're never wholly who you were before. Be wise about your relationships. Be wise about your dating. Be wise about what you're willing to do with whoever you're with. Be wise about those things. Because the world says, you know what, it's all cool. But yet it fractures us inside when we start giving pieces of ourselves away. Polyamory, this growing idea of polyamory, it's just, it boggles my mind. It really does. It boggles my mind. But what it says is, there's no one person that can give me everything I want. So I need multiple people to, to meet my needs. See, that's jealous and arrogant and boastful and selfish. That is not the kind of love that Paul is talking about. It's not arrogant and it's not rude. It's not focused on ourselves like a black hole sucking up everything around it. It goes on to say, again, Another what love is not. It does not insist on its own way, which some of us, that's tough because, you know, some of our Enneagram fans know that I'm a one on the Enneagram, which means I feel like I need to, in health, I still need to reform things, need to make things better. And we have a saying in our family, and it runs through multiple generations of our family, though not everyone will admit it that I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. <laughs> That's a true phrase about many of us in our family. But love, this type of love, it doesn't insist on its own way because remember, it's not all about me. Love is about others. How does that affect your marriage? How does that affect the way you raise your kids? How does that affect your friendships, your work relationships? Love doesn't insist on its own way. He goes on and says, another thing that love is not is it's not irritable or resentful. And I got to be honest, there are times I'm irritable and resentful. If I don't get enough sleep, you can bet I'm going to be irritable. It's this picture of whenever you walk in the room and you see somebody, and you're like, oh, I'm staying away from them. I got to have anything to do with them. Or they're just repetitively irritable. And sometimes we justify that and say, well, you don't understand what I've been through. Yet love, again, is not about us. It's about others. The whole law is about you being loved. No, the whole law is about loving God and loving others. It's not irritable or resentful. It's it doesn't cost other people something to be around you. It doesn't make them leave feeling discouraged, depressed, and like less of a person because they were in your presence. Instead of being kind and the time is sweet, when you're constantly irritable, the time is toxic and it's costful. And we leave feeling depleted, not filled back up. It goes on to say another thing that love is not. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But one thing it does do is it rejoices with the truth. Some of your translations say instead of it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, it says something like it does not take into account um, a wrong done. Other translations will actually use the word evil here. And and the idea here is, is that I don't, get excited about things that are unhealthy. I, I don't pursue things that are unhealthy. You see, that's 
just the world we live in. We, we are born into a world of unhealth. As parents, we do the very best to parent, but we're still people who have our own issues and problems. None of us parent perfectly. We all struggle and we all make mistakes. That's just the reality of, of, of how that is and how that works. It takes into account that this is what humanity is like. We look at things like polyamory or addiction or anger or hatred, and we recognize the negative effects it has on people, and so we don't rejoice when they happen because we know they hurt people. We don't look at sin and say, you know what, that sin, I know people say that's not a good sin, but you know what, what's the big deal about it? But yet it hurts people. We don't gloss over that stuff. We don't look past it. We don't enable our friends who are caught up in something and just ignore it because we're trying to be loving. Because loving doesn't ignore wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but we remember that love is also patient, so I don't race to their face to let them know how they have failed because sometimes they need time and I need to choose the right time because I love them. I need to choose the right time for this conversation, not just the time that is now because I'm impatient. I don't have time for you and I want you to know what you've done is wrong and I want you to know I know it's wrong. No, we don't. That's not what love is. For some of us, based on the background that we came up with in the church, we have to rewrite our entire understanding of faith when we understand what love is. Some people came up in a background that said, you point out every fault of every person that you can, and God is happy with you on that. And God would say, you have not love. You have nothing. Because it's patient and kind. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. There's a part of us that we have to recognize. There are pieces of brokenness that need to be healed. There are pieces of just poison that need to be pulled out, need to be replaced with something. I want to show you a video. And so if you're watching online, it may get muted. I have recently become infatuated with Russell Brand. Now, if you're my age, you remember remember Russell Brand from the late 90s, early 2000s. Like a lot of people you talk to now don't even know who it is, but he was hugely popular comic. He is still a comic. He still tours. But I came upon one video which so piqued my interest, I had to start digging into what's happened to this guy because he is one of the most foul-mouthed comics on any tour out there. And there's a little bit of language, but not much in this clip. But interestingly, he comes from a a, a very non-Christian background and has found God. And we're going to leave it at that. Now, Russell Brand, I'm not going to invite him to come and teach, but I will tell you that his perspective on faith, we could all really learn from. Because he's not coming from a Christian upbringing. He's coming from a world of selfish pleasure, of, of, of the, the seeking of Eros love in every way. He, he describes his time at the height of his career in the early 2000s that he was just a bottomless pit that needed to suck everything in from everybody else to make him feel whole, and it ad- absolutely destroyed him. He was addicted to drugs. He was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to sex. And even though he was on top of the world and the world celebrated him and said, you have made it, this is what it means to live a full life, he said, I was absolutely empty and broken. So in this particular clip that I want to show you, this is a conversation he's having on his podcast called Under the Skin. And and one of the things that he tries to do in this podcast is he tries to holistically bring in the opinion of celebrities and notable people what they feel like life in the world is actually supposed to be about. And he talks about lots of different things. This conversation, and I'm not going to show you the whole thing, conversation started with uh, an interview with Matthew McConaughey about right and left politics and how we need to somehow move to the middle. But then all of a sudden, in a quick turn, Matthew McConaughey starts talking about how people think they have to get ahead. And you might hear something very similar to what we've just talked about and what he says. And then I want you to listen for what Russell Brand says God is for him 
and what that means for him. And I want you to think about that in the sense of we have this brokenness within us that sometimes we need to dig it out and we replace it with something else. So watch this clip. I'll be back in just a minute. I raise myself up momentarily. I feel my ego momentarily if I put you down. Meaning not because I, we, 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 we're a nation, we're a world that cheers louder when our opponent misses a shot than we are happy when we make a shot. <laughs> that's, that's not the way forward. I think we can see that one is affirmative, one's contradictory. One is, 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 is checking in with self and going, yes, I have an innate ability. I worked at it. I was in the moment. I made the shot. Yes, I can look in the mirror and go, you're responsible for that, as well as a whole bunch of other people. But we don't forget that one. Let's just rubberneck. Let's just rubberneck through life and sit there and just go, yeah, look, they wrecked. Yeah, that's short money. That's not ROI. That's not a, that's a battery-powered green light. That ain't a solar-powered green light. That's in a little two-volt battery. It's going to dim real quick, and you're going to need another fix. Someone else to put down. Someone else to down-thumb. Someone else to comment. Someone else to snide. It's that, 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 that person. We've all done it. I've been this guy before. The person at the party who gets everyone together and tells you this great thing, little inside joke on, on Leslie over there or Johnny over there that they wouldn't say in front of them because it's kind of dirt. And in the moment, we all laugh our ass off because it was a great joke. But then when we walk away, we inherently lose respect for that guy. It's short money. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You know, part of my own uh, relationship with God is to try to find within myself, my temporal self, my transient, passing, dying right now self, where I can access eternal principles, honor, integrity decency kindness and one by one try to eliminate things that don't make sense to me you know like i like you know like i don't feel good about myself when i criticize other people i don't feel good about myself and it's sort of somewhat like you said stealing from my future self when i practice those things i hope that all came through um and didn't get muted you can look up the interview. It's very easy to find. Just look up Russell Brand and Matthew McConaughey. The whole interview is really great. But that particular section, I wanted you to hear, you hear two things. Matthew McConaughey saying, you know, that guy that, that makes that joke about somebody else that tears him down, we all laugh, but secretly when we walk away, we think poorly of the guy who just made that joke. Even though we laughed with him and they think, look, everybody thinks I'm funny, we, we secretly are judging them. Because we know that's not good. And, and I love what Russell Brand says is, you know what, part, I, I recognize that when I criticize other people, I don't feel good. Like something doesn't make sense. It's not the way life is supposed to be. And so for him, and, and a conversation about who God is to Russell Brand is a, a much deeper conversation than I'm going to give it today. But it's, I think, a good one because his perspective is, it just seems so pure and genuine even if it, he doesn't use all the words we would want him to use, to say, I, I take these things out that are broken in me and I replace them with something better. See, that's what love is. Love is recognizing, I, I'm not going to just ignore wrongdoing. I'm going to rejoice with the truth and I'm going to find ways to deal with this human condition. So love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Then Paul goes on and he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, which is a little confusing because love doesn't believe all things, right? So whenever we are at dinner and it's time for us to have dessert and Malia, who, if she's listening right now, says, I ate all my, all my food, but secretly she was shoveling it down to Josie under the table. Love doesn't make me just believe her, right? I don't believe all things. So it, 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 when we kind of read through this, we, we have to understand what's Paul trying to say here? Because love clearly doesn't believe all things. If someone has a, a, an addiction to meth, we don't believe that that's a good thing, right? Or if someone says, you know what, if you love me, you'll go buy me another drink, when we know that another drink will just cause them 
downwardly spiral because they have an addiction to alcohol. If they say, no, I'll be good this time. Love doesn't say, I just believe everything. No, that's not what it's saying. And, and in the same thing, we don't hope all things. Like, I hope my competition dies a tragic death. We don't hope all things, right? And we don't always endure all things. Sometimes we need to walk away. So what's Paul trying to say here? It really, if we read on to the last phrase, the last positive note of what love is, says love never ends. He's trying to punctuate the reality that love always is. There is a universal constant, and it is love. Love is always. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never ends. Love is always. I'm always believing in you. I'm always hoping for you. I'm always here for you. I'm long-suffering for you. Love is always. Love never ends. So does this belong in a series on emotions? We've not actually talked about feelings at all. Paul hasn't talked about feelings at all. Almost everything Paul has said is that there's an action attached to love. Love, as we can, I think, correctly summarize this, love is a choice that we constantly make for other people. It's not just a choice, but we choose in a common direction. We've shown some different videos and things from the Bible Project, and the uh, director of that project, Tim Mackey, is a Hebrew scholar and uh, just says things so much better than most of us do. He says this about love. He says, love is a settled purpose to act in a way that brings about the well-being of a person no matter how they respond. Think about that a settled purpose, a choice that I make to act in a way that brings about the well-being of a person, not me, but another person, no matter how they respond to that. I'm just going to choose to be about your well-being and to be about making your well-being more. Now, we can deconstruct that and we can talk about that, but I do believe that this is what love is. There's love choosing the well-being of others can look in a lot of different ways. So you look at these elephants and the mother's protecting her child from the rain. That's the picture of love, protection. There are so many other images of protecting their child. Yes, that is looking after the well-being of another, but so is this image of a bird kicking her young out of the nest. Isn't that a beautiful image? I mean, the foot's right there. Like, you're out. See, that's love too. Love is not just that feeling good or giving them what they want. Sometimes they need a swift kick because what they need for their well-being is to understand sometimes you just have to go out and do this on your own and you need a little bit more encouragement than me telling you to go do it. They need to get a swift kick. That is just as much love at times as a mother covering her child from the rain or something worse. So here's what I'm going to leave us with today. Love is the idea and the action that says when I perpetually make room for others, the more I become what God wanted me to become. It's the idea and the action because love is active. It's not passive. It's not just something we receive. It's something we give. The action that says when I perpetually make room for others, the more I become what God wants me or us to become as the church, what he wants us to become. That is very different than trying to live a life to get other people to love us because love is us loving them. I just, it, one of the reasons this is so hard for people to understand, this is the same problem with understanding marriage 
how one person is supposed to submit to the other. We often read only a portion of that chapter from Paul where he says, women, submit to your husbands. And that was in many wedding vows for decades. But he says the verse immediately before that, that we're supposed to submit to each other. See, there's something beautiful about relationships in which I'm focused on giving to you. In our culture, if you're not in one of those relationships, then you fear, well, I'm going to eventually not have anything left unless you're in relationships with people who are doing this for you. Now, they're constantly filling you up. The time with them is sweet. The time of them taking care of you and your needs and on you're feeling on top of the world so that all of a sudden I can take care of you. It's this mutually caring for each other that is supposed to be the church. It's that mutual submission to each other in marriage that it actually doesn't feel like submission at all. It just feels like love. When we give to each other, but you live in a culture where many of the people you run into, they're trying to suck as much out of you as they can, and you will feel empty until you find the people that are one of our givers. They're agape lovers. That's what we're supposed to be in the church. It's, it's an action of love. When a guest walks in, we choose to, to extend love, even if they look different from us or smell different from us, talk different from us. We receive them in love because that's what agape love is. It's giving. It's what we do when it's time to launch back our children's ministry and you're thinking, do I want to go wipe some runny noses in the kids' ministry? It's, this is love. We care for these children. We care for their parents by caring for their children. And then it can cost us something, but then we come alongside and we care for those who are caring for our kids. It's that mutual giving to each other. Love is the idea and the action that when I perpetually make room for others, the more I become what God wants me to become. And it is growing in our capacity to love others well, which is our calling as Christians. You should not just be getting better at reading the Bible. You should be getting better at loving people. Let that sink in, and we can each assess where we are in that. This is honestly an area we in the church usually don't do really well in, but it's an area we can, we should, we must. So how are you doing with this? How is this understanding of love different how does that change your relationships? My prayer for us is that we would love well. And remember, next week, we're going to kind of package all the things we've talked about, and we're going to talk about where is God when I hurt. Because love is great. That's a lot of fun to talk about. But what about when I hurt? Where is God? We're going to do that. Week after that, we're going to talk about living intentionally, even when we're not feeling it. And I hope that you'll join us. Father, God, you have loved us fully and completely. You have loved us in a way that we ourselves struggle to understand and to live out. And God, I pray that you would not only help us to see and feel and experience your love, but you would allow us to do that for others. Pray for the person who's listening right now and they feel absolutely empty and they need someone who is patient and kind to come alongside of them. I pray that you would connect us, even when connection is so difficult right now. I pray for that person who is just constantly jealous and envious because they feel like they're losing all the time. Shift their perspective to what it means to win, away from ourselves and to others, so we can become what you created us to become. And I pray that we, as your kingdom, will show others this beautiful way of love that gives us meaning in life, and a calling for how we share the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray.